another thing this morning, we have a guest speaker with us, and uh, this is a man that I love very much and uh, I used to work with. So speaking of people I used to work with, but um, uh, this is a man I love very much. I remember the first time I met him, and uh, I met him, well, yeah, we used to serve together at a church, and I met him after one of our services right before, well, actually, it was during the process we were considering hiring him. And uh, I met him after that service, and I'm talking to this guy, and I'm looking, I'm looking at him in the eye, and I'm thinking, this has got to be the most likable human I have ever met. And uh, his name is Brooke Moser. Um, some of you might know him, especially if you are connected through our Sending Church Reality LA. We were on staff there together for many years. And, um, and so he's in town, and he's going to be our guest speaker today. We're excited to have him. He is now living up in Oregon. He leads a nonprofit up there, which he'll share a little bit about in a, in a bit. And, um, and he's going to continue on with our, our series, our Advent series. So Brooke Moser, come on up, buddy. doesn't always let people hug him, so I'm happy to get one. Uh, good to see you all. Good morning. This is going to be a long day if we don't respond, I promise. So uh, what I understand is that you guys stand when we read the scripture, but don't do it yet. Uh, we're going to do it in just a second. Uh, Lorenzo, that was very kind, and I've known April for all of five minutes, and I've seen her. She is the glue to this place. So uh, <laughs> thank you for all that you do. I've seen that already, and I've only been here, like I said, for five minutes. Um, I get to lead something called Intentional, as uh, Lo said, and uh, my wife and I, and actually her parents, if you want to talk about family drama, let me know after. We've got tons of experience in that arena. Um, we lead a nonprofit called Intentional, which is all about spiritual formation in the family. And so we write books, do conferences, podcasts, all that type of stuff. I'm also have been a pastor this like half time, doing this like, half time world for a little while. So it's been crazy. Um, so I'm just honored to be here with another group of people that seem to be wonderful. And your, churches in LA are always just so cool. Like I always forget about this. You guys meet in these rad venues all the time. I just love it. It feels at home. So with that said, can we stand? We're going to read the scripture together. And if you don't normally, you guys normally stand, right? That's what I was told. Yeah. yeah? Okay, good. Uh, for the reading of the scripture today, it's because first John should be on the screen right there. Yep. There we go going to begin in verse 7. Do you guys read it all together? Or do you just, do I read to you? Which Sometimes. is it? Sometimes. You guys want to read it together today? You feeling it? Let's do it together. Ready? One, two, three. Dear, Dear friends, friends, let us love one another because love is from God. And everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God because God is love. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his son, one and only son, into the world so that we might live through him. Love consists in this, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, if God loved us in this way, we also must love one another. Will you pray with me? And as it is Advent and Christmas season, if you are comfortable with holding your hands out like you're receiving a gift, the idea that we just want to pray for the favor and the gift of the Holy Spirit today. Holy Spirit, we just invite you to come. You see these hands which are connected to a body, which are connected to minds and souls and hearts and beings that need to meet with you, that desire to meet with you. We're in this space today because we have a need, and that need is being fulfilled by friendship around us, some by opening the scripture, but ultimately we want you to guide and lead our time. We want you to explore the depths of our hearts and the areas that we need help. We want you to explore the inner parts of us that need your direction, correction, healing, blessing. God, we're desperate people. And so we come with all of our drama and our trauma and our frustrations and our excitements and the things we're looking forward to and the things we've been devastated by. And we're just saying, please take all of us, Jesus, and please heal and please help and please bring hope, we ask in your wonderful name. And everyone said joyfully because it matters. Amen. 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 You can grab a seat. 
So as you're sitting down, uh, I just, before we get into today, I need to make a confession on the outset. Uh, a little over 17 years ago, I believe it was now, I did something that I deeply regret, um, something that I'm not particularly proud of, and something that in many ways I wish no one ever knew. Uh, but here, even now, I kind of feel obliged to share with you. In the early 2000s, in a moment of youthful indiscretion, I became a pastor. <laughs> Started slow. I was first a youth intern, which is the gateway drug, by the way, to become a pastor, if you've ever been in this space. And if you've ever been responsible for middle schoolers or high school kids that are not your own, it leads you to doing what I am doing now, which is speaking with sane adults who understand proper hygiene and you don't feel compelled to just scream out loud in public for no reason at all. That, it's a gift, it's a real gift. You don't understand what you're, you're missing. Now, all joking aside, I do love what I get to do. I, I'm in a helping vocation uh, where I get to help people for a living through ministry and different mediums. But if there's one thing, if just I had to pick one thing to change about what I do, about my job, I would say it would be the people. I would love to not have to work with people. Um, and have you picked up on this yet? Anybody? Have you picked up on this yet? Uh, people are hard. If you're an amen church, you don't have to be, but you can say amen to that. People are hard. And I'm not just talking about like other people. I'm talking about your people. Your people are hard. Your family, your friends, your spouse, your children. They're hard. Am I right? Anybody? Yes? It's objectively hard to me. I have a wife. I've been married for 16 years. I have four children, 13 down to four. When that four-year-old wakes me up in the middle of the night because she had a bad dream, and then she wants to sleep next to me in my bed, and then she proceeds to pee the bed, and then once we get all that cleaned up and settled down, 30 minutes later, she has a bloody nose. Yeah, I'm pretty done with people at that point. Like, I'm pretty done. That's a real story. It's happened recently. I don't want to talk about it. I'm still like therapy in about the whole thing. Uh, but the next day she's grumpy and it's, and it's my responsibility to deal with her bad attitude for what she did all night. Like I, it does not feel fair. People are hard. And the comfort that comes to me is that God knew this. God knew people were going to be hard. And so he devised this really brilliant plan, which involves what we celebrate this season. And if you're in a church, the answer is always what? Jesus. Yeah. So he, yeah, he is, his plan was Jesus. And it's always the right answer. You'll never get it wrong. And his life, Jesus's life, was an example to give you and I hope uh, to this very felt problem that we have of people. And this is not new, right? Since the beginning of time, people have been at war with one another, quite literally. We're seeing that even now. Which reminds me of a, an actual story from not so recent history, but not too far off. A time that only your great-grandparents would remember. Uh, it was Christmas Eve, I believe it was 1914. And it was in the dank and muddy trenches of the Western Front of the First World War, for any of you history buffs. Something remarkable was happening on this particular Christmas Eve. And it was one of the strangest moments in this war and has remained one of the strangest moments. And it came to be called something known as the Christmas Truce. Has anyone heard of this? So the Christmas Truce. And, and here's what basically happened. The Germans decided to sing carols because generally they were happier people. So they're singing carols. And it was Christmas Eve. Now you can conjure up like images of Charles Dickens, a, a Christmas carol. You know, the one with greedy Mr. Scrooge. You know what I'm talking about? If that's too like old for you, you can definitely just download uh, the new movie Spirited with Will Ferrell and Ryan Reynolds out now on Apple TV. You can check that out. It's that vibe. This, this conversation today is endorsed by that movie. Um, but in the darkness of that night, these British soldiers begin to sing back to these German soldiers. And suddenly, the British soldiers heard something, and they were confused, so they all stopped. They and they said, just listen, listen. And this shout came and said, come over here. And they all stopped and listened again, and they heard it again. Come over here. And what it was was a German soldier in broken English trying to say, hey, come over here. And so one of the British guards says, uh, how about you come halfway? I don't know who that guy was, but very intelligent man. He says, you come halfway, I'll come halfway, right? What happened next would stun the world and literally make history. Because enemy soldiers begin to climb nervously out of these really terrible trenches to meet in this barbed wire filled place called No Man's Land. 
And normally, the British, the British and the Germans communicated across no man's land uh, with streaking bullets and only like this occasional allowance of gentlemanly care of picking up your friends that had just died. But now, all of a sudden, there were handshakes and there were words of kindness. The soldiers started trading songs together and laughing. They were sharing tobacco and songs and wine. My kind of people, anyone else? I, was, I would love to be there. And they all of a sudden had this spontaneous holiday party. It was even so great that all of a sudden a soccer game bro broke out. Like there was a soccer ball that appeared. So they created goals and they started playing soccer. And it was a beautiful moment. Now for the rest of World War I, which is a conflict that would ultimately claim like 15 million or so lives. There were no more Christmas truces, and there haven't been any since. But in 1914, this curious, curious holiday get-together, this moment, reminded us of something, that wars were not fought by forces, but they were actually fought by human beings with a need to give and to receive love. And that day, hundreds of soldiers literally decided to practice love in all, of it, in all of its practical forms. They literally decided, for this day anyway, to not kill each other. And for them, at that time, that was saying a lot. They decided to practice love in that way. And so today, as we are in Advent, and as we are going to talk about love, I want to give a couple of heads up of where we're going. Because if I can be so bold... It's very easy to hear this word love and immediately tune out or be disconnected to what you think or feel love is. Anybody understand what I'm saying? Love is such an overplayed word. We love lots of things and we like very little. Uh, this is a real problem. So I want to say at the outset, the love that Jesus lives out is the single most important way of living that will change the world and bring the happiness you and I long for. That's the truth. A man named Daniel C. Dennett said this, the secret of happiness. Anyone ready for this? Find something more important than you, then dedicate your life to it. Now, Daniel C. Denton uh, is actually an atheist philosopher, and I agree with him on this point. Now, I greatly differ with him on what we should focus on for our life, but I actually very much agree with him in this way, <laughs> that we have to have something beyond us we have to have something beyond ourselves to focus, which I would argue is Jesus, God the Father, the Holy Spirit, so we can flourish in this life. And we know this. If you're the center of your own universe, your own main focus, what normally happens? You end up self-destructing pretty quick. Have you experienced this yet? When you just are self-absorbed all the time? And God knows this. So he gives us this, his son gives us this example and shows us the way of love the way to love in this way that can help us and help the world thrive. So today, I just want to look at three simple things. The problem of people, which I barely mentioned, but I still have more. Uh, the compassion of Jesus and how we get this love into us, okay? The problem of people, the compassion of Jesus, and how do we get this love into us? So the problem of people. Have you ever asked yourself, or let me ask you, why are people so hard to love? Well, uh, one of the real reasons is because that love, most of the time, is actually hard work. And if we're going to be really honest, people are hard to love. So it's hard, but people are hard. And there's few moments when it's easy to love people. For example, at the beginning of a relationship. Anyone there? Don't raise your hand. I don't want to know. Uh, at the beginning of the relationship, because it makes me mad. I'm just jealous of the fact that you have this lens of life that is not rooted in reality. It's actually a biological thing that's tracked, and we know it for, from scientific facts and all these things, that all this stuff happens at the beginning of a relationship to tie you in in a good way, to pull you into something that's going to form you to be a better human, but it's a lot of work. Like, it's a lot of work. Any married people say amen. You can say amen if you want, right? Like, it's real. Um, but relationships, uh, there's this time, it's beautiful at the beginning of marriage, at the beginning of a relationship where love feels easy, doesn't it? It feels like, oh, this is blissful. They could never do anything wrong, could they? Everything is great. They always act well. They always look great. They always smell great. All the things work out right now in this season. But to be honest, eventually, easy love fades and real work begins. That's the truth of it. And Christians, I've learned over the years, are some of the hardest people to love because we know better and they know better. I even find it funny that in Christian circles especially, we try to use this like unique 
language to describe how annoying people can be. Like literally, this is not a joke. Someone <laughs> recently was describing a hard person or someone that was being difficult. They came to me and they're like, you know, I'm having this problem with this person. And you know, they're kind of like an extra grace required person. <laughs> it's like, what? Like, can we just use normal language here? What did you just say? Like extra grace required person? What is that, right? We find these fancy ways to say people are hard sometimes. People are, be clear, you know, people are challenging. So two reasons that, that this love is hard and why love can be very challenging. One, you know, second one, you might not. But the first is sin. The main reason we run into difficulties in loving others is first and foremost, and obviously I'd say, is sin. Both our sin and the sin of those that we try to love. Humans are, are fallen creatures. Apart from God and his power, normally we're selfish and loving ourselves is a much easier task, isn't it? It is so much easier to care for myself, my needs, my wants than somebody else's or to rather bend my life and schedule to make sure someone else can have a good life. So when we battle both our own and others' selfishness and sin tendencies, uh, it can make love feel like a chore. It feels like this is a lot of work to have to love you. Like it's a lot of work. Recently, my wife wanted to go running in the morning, which she often does. It's her way of staying sane. It's her way of uh, processing life. It's a huge physical and emotional and mental outlet for her, which I know. So I usually often make time for her to do that in the morning. But like I said, we have four kids. One of our little girls has special needs. So when I take all four kids, it's not like, oh, I got the kids going to run. It's like, I have the kids. And if I'm alive when you get back, this is a good day, right? Like that's, that's what it's like. We just don't know. And she goes on a run, and on that particular morning, I did not feel like basically carrying this whole load and going to war and being woken up in the morning and being like, you want to go on a run, and I want you to have that, but like, it's a lot of work, and, and I did not want to free her up to do what she needed. I was feeling selfish, but interestingly enough, she was feeling selfish too. And she thought that the fact that I didn't want to take on the load of the kids was absolute rubbish and I was being selfish and I needed to grow up. She was absolutely right, but I feel like I was right too. Do you see the tension that we're living in all the time? Do you see, right? So first is sin. Second is that we often don't understand what biblical love is. So why is love so hard? First sin, second, because we often don't understand what biblical love is. We tend to think of love primarily because of culture and where we live and all that as an emotional response. The problem is that we cannot always control our emotions, especially if you grew up in a dysregulated emotional home. That's a whole other conversation for another time. But depending upon your upbringing, depending upon your emotional state, what trauma you did or did not experience, you cannot always be in touch with or aware of or know how to process your own emotions. And so things just move. They can just happen. And too often, they just happen to us. But the kind of love that God's talking about here and he has for us is, it, is a little bit different of a love. If you've been in church for any amount of time, you've heard there's different types of love. And one of the loves that God has for us is agape love, which is, in essence, it's a love that is sacrificial. That's what it means. God's love for us is a sacrificial love, the kind that sent him, as example, to the cross for our sins. He died for us, not because we were lovable, he saved us because his love caused himself to sacrifice himself for us. So let's just pause, mental pause really quick. Ask yourself this question. Do we, do you and I, do we love others enough to sacrifice for them even when they are not lovable? Because that's the real test, right? When they don't deserve it. If you're a justice person, if you're one on the Enneagram, whether you follow Enneagram or not, whether you think it's great or whatever, it's just a tool, but I would just say, if you're a one on the Enneagram and justice is like super important to you and someone's like, they don't deserve my love. They probably don't, you're right. They don't deserve your love. But the point is that you love them in spite of their deserving of it, just as Jesus does to us. Loving others is a matter of the will, not the emotion. My response, your response is your responsibility and how we respond matters. And I see this all the time as I pastor and as I get to lead intentional. People will come to my wife and I, they'll come to me and they'll say, I just don't feel love for this person like I did. So I'm, I'm moving on. I say that all the time. Maybe that's your story. Or, or another one that I hear all the time. Uh, this is real. I, I mean, I deserve to be happy in this life. I only have one life to live. I deserve to be happy. 
And my response, to be sincere and not too blunt, is, are you kidding me? Like, as followers of Jesus, that line of thinking should alarm you. It is alarming. I often hear, I give all the time. When is it finally my turn to have my way? Which is sadly a tune of an immature, selfish generation who has not yet properly understood what it means to love. The truth is, people suck sometimes, don't they? They're hard. It's frustrating. Marriage? You guys want to talk about marriage real quick? Marriage will gut you. Because now not only do you get to deal with your issues, now you get to deal with your spouse's issues too. Now, if you're not married, I think marriage is a beautiful thing. I think everybody in this room should get married. I think there's nothing on this planet that is like it, and I think it's the best thing for your formation and being a whole human. That said, it's good to know what you're getting into. Marriage is a sanctifying institution because you are going to be marrying a mirror. You are marrying literally like a mirror that is following you around, reflecting back to you who you really are, not who you've told yourself you are or projected yourself to be. It's the true stuff, which is why it's so hard. And marriage is one of the most glorious and ruthless institutions on the planet because you cannot escape yourself. You cannot get away from you. And oftentimes we want to blame or shift the blame to our spouse, but the reality is you haven't taken a look in that mirror to go, maybe I have some work to do. Maybe, maybe you are not as pleasant as you think. And that's the same truth that's represented in this passage. You cannot hide from the problem of people. You cannot. So you have, you have a, a couple options. Since you can't hide, you can either choose the way of love like Jesus is talking about, or you can be a person who is resentful, irritated and perpetually inconvenienced by others. And if we're being honest, LA folks, there's a lot of people around to be inconvenienced by. Am I right? I remember living here and thinking like, I just want to go to Trader Joe's. I don't feel like that's too much to ask. I don't feel like I've, maybe it is now. Maybe I am entitled to thinking a parking spot is what I'm owed on this planet and that this shouldn't take some sort of an emotional breakdown to just get groceries. Turns out that's what it costs here, right? Your emotional sanity is not something they charge you for at Trader Joe's, but it's a gift you get, you know? It's a gift you get. So you can be perpetually inconvenienced, or you can be introverts in the room. Are there any in the room? Uh, you can just isolate from people altogether for as long as possible, right? Yeah, amen. Yeah. It's going to be a dark life, right? We need people. But we try, we, we try all these different ways to get away. And, and this is where, in my opinion, this is where we need an example from Jesus' life. So first, we have the problem of people, but now I really want to talk about Jesus' compassion. Turn to Mark chapter 1 if you are a Bible-turning place. If not, if you have a phone, go to Mark chapter 1. And if you're like, I didn't bring any of those things, good news, it's on the screen. And this is just a quick photo or an idea of how Jesus' love can help us love and gives us a picture. And so here's the story. Verse 41 of Mark 1. On one occasion, a leper came and threw himself down in front of Jesus. Can we just pause really quick? Reflect on that. When was the last time we were so desperate that we were willing to do anything for healing? Right? So he throws himself down in front of Jesus, pleading for his healing, saying, You have the power to heal me right now, if only you really want to. And Jesus, this is beautiful, being deeply moved with tender compassion, Jesus reached out and he touched the skin of the leper and told him, of course I want you to be healed. So now be cleansed. Beautiful, beautiful story. This man knew Jesus had something he needed. And I would argue that there are people around you that know you have something they need. When you are a person who follows the way of Jesus, there is an air about you. There's a presence. There's a joy. There's a peace. Now, does that mean everything's good all the time? Absolutely not. But people know in their soul when they don't have something and they see somebody that has it. And I would argue that we all have something that others need. And it might even be as simple as your attention, your affirmation, your commitment, your resources. Only you really know. And when there is someone in need and you have it within you and your time and your resources and your power to meet that need, that's biblical love. 
when you see the pain around you and you have resources or energy or time to meet that, that is what Jesus is talking about. The late and the great Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, uh, we must learn to regard people less in the light of what they do or omit to do and more in the light of what they suffer. We need to view those around us as they are in their light of their suffering, not just what they did or didn't do. And wouldn't you just imagine and connect the fact that you have to not be self-focused to see that? If you're self-focused, my friends, it is so hard to love people actively. And this man threw himself down in front of Jesus, and he was suffering. And Jesus didn't critique him and be like, dude, how did you get leprosy? Who were you touching? Like, you know the rules around here. Like, don't touch the other lepers, right? He didn't do that. He just looked at his suffering. And the man with leprosy said, you have the power to heal me right now if only you really want to. The difference with Jesus and with you and I is that Jesus was willing to be inconvenienced for the good of the other. He was willing to have his schedule messed up, to have other people drain his finances, to take emotional energy, to mess up whatever his flow state was at that moment. Like, he was willing to do that. And so, another quick mental pause. How are we doing with that? There's no judgment or shame in this space. I'm not the guy that's like, feel bad, be a better Christian. It's really effective to make you feel bad. That will make you a better Christian. Not at all. This is a moment for you to look really quick and say, how's that actually going in me? How's that actually going in this space and in this time? Biblical love is to will the good of the other. It's to find the need and to meet it. For me on that morning when my wife's running, it's for me to say, yes, honey, I will take the atomic bomb of caring for our children. I'll absorb that atomic bomb in my body. And I will take the effects of that for the rest of the day. That would have been the loving thing to do. And I would like to say, sometimes I do. And sometimes I don't. And that's the tension of being a Jesus follower. The text says he was moved with tender compassion. And that means it was a really intense emotion. Some Greek manuscripts translate that little portion right there, tender compassion, to Jesus was moved with anger at the leprosy, not at the man. Jesus was deeply moved with compassion towards the man and angry at the disease. Now to bring it to you and me, when is the last time you and I were so filled with compassion for someone that righteous anger towards that person's misfortune just bled out? You see someone who doesn't, who can't keep a job or who is houseless and you, and you are so mad, not at the person, not at the chronic problem of the, what's going on in our world, but you're literally so moved with compassion that you're angry for them at their situation. Not for the person, but for their situation. To the point where you're willing to be greatly inconvenienced because of that compassion. That you actually say, I'm going to pray through and do something about this. My friends, that's biblical love. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, this is what I came to show you. This is what I came to give you and to help you. So to sum up this story of Jesus and the leper, you have the power to help people right now if you only really want to. Here's the truth. You have the power to be a much better spouse if only you really want to. You have the power to be a much better employee with the power of the Spirit if only you really want to. You have the power to be a better human, exercise maybe, eat right, all these things, right? Only if you really want to. And I'm not saying that as a way of like self-help. I'm saying that is the way of Jesus. If we really do want these things, we have the spirit that can help us do them. What a gift that is to you and to me. So how do we live that kind of life? How do we live this kind of life where love is pouring out of us and we're actually living in this like, agape, sacrificial love? How do we actually do that? How do we get this love into us? Well, my favorite thing about Jesus is that he's not just hypothetical. He's really practical. In all of his teachings, he was incredibly practical, and he helps us with this. And he did an amazing job of showing us how to receive that love and how to give that love. And so today, here's what I want to do. I want to point us towards three different ways that we can graft Jesus's life into ours this week so we can actually learn to live this way. I want to look at three spiritual disciplines to propagate love. And if you're here and you're new to spiritual disciplines or that's a new word for you, let me just give you a brief idea of what they are. And I'm sure you already know, but just for sake of conversation, I'm going to tell you. Spiritual disciplines are intentional ways that we open up space 
in our lives, in our time, in our schedule for the worship of God. They are not harsh, but they are grace-filled ways of responding to God's presence. They simply just put us in a place where we can begin to notice God and respond to what he's saying to you and to me and maybe collectively, but also individually. Our part is simply to just offer ourselves to him, to engage and just open our minds to him. And so with that, I want to, the first spiritual discipline I want to point us towards is the spiritual discipline of humility. Now, a spiritual discipline is, can be things like prayer, reading scripture, fasting, giving, all of that stuff. But there's a lot of other spiritual disciplines. And this particular spiritual discipline is one that has been incredibly helpful for me. And so if we're going to live the way of Jesus, the first thing we need to do is be intentional, be thoughtful about the way of humility. So humble people often and need to let go of image management and self-promotion. Now, I know this is a hard ask in LA. This is a hard thing to say. Like, hey, give up that image that you've been working on for so long, or maybe don't be so aware of it. And self-promotion, that's like a huge part of some of your careers, right? Humility is not thinking less of yourself. You've heard this before, but it's thinking of yourself less. It's making yourself less a part of the center of your universe. Remember, true happiness is found in making something else, someone, I would say Jesus, the center of your universe. So it's thinking of yourself less. And often when you are walking in humility, we, we honor others and we make their needs as important as our own is the idea. And in a world of corporate and political and economic and social hierarchies, which we're all aware of, humility is a hard sell. I recognize that me saying, hey, just think about yourself less this week. That's hard because who wants to be at the bottom? Who wants to be last in line? Who wants to be left out of the loop? Like, are you wanting that? No, I don't actively want that, right? So people in our day and age, like, right, we go out of our way to have people realize how gifted we are, don't we? You accidentally drop a hint. Yeah, I just did this the other day. My bad. Oops. Uh, you realize how qualified I am for this? We, we want people to know how valuable we are and how productive we are. You just love to tweet things. Well, not tweeting anymore. You love to say things on different social media platforms that are emerging and evolving. You like to say things like, oh, my gosh, had a great work day going to Mexico for another week or five days because I have the money to. Like, forget you. I hate you when you do that. Right? It's like those moments are so incredibly not helpful for the rest of the world. They make you feel good, and they don't help anyone else. And we know that. We all compete so we won't be overlooked or underutilized. And it's a normal human longing to want to be validated or, or appreciated or recognized for your potential. It's totally normal. But humility stems, like we said, from having someone beside yourself as the center of your attention. And even as an example, Jesus' focus was God the Father. It wasn't himself. Even Jesus followed this. Jesus was born the helpless son of a Virgin Mary in the most humble beginnings that you can think of. He was born into poverty. And it's insane to think that God would lower himself like he did. Uh, Jonathan Edwards put it really well. He suggested that Christ is infinitely greater than us, which we would all go, yeah, totally agree. But he also said he's infinitely more humble. And it's so true. He was not only more, uh, he was infinitely greater, but he was also incredibly humble. I remember Jesus uh, said in Matthew 6, verse 1, be careful not to practice your righteousness or show off all the wonderful things you're doing in front of others to be seen by them. Because if you do, that's your reward from your Father in heaven. You'll have no reward. It's none. It's not there. So let's talk practically really quick. How can we practice humility this week with the Spirit's help? How can we actually jump into this discipline? First, this week, I would encourage you to refrain from image management. For some of you, this is going to be like being aware of it. Image management is all the things that we do that we're aware of and maybe even not aware of to project the type of person that we hope to be or that we want the world to see us to be. And so this week, you get a vacation from managing yourself and your image. Isn't that great? You get a week off of, re you get to refrain from image management. And this is really sneaky, by the way. I've been in therapy for so many years, and one of my, the most helpful things is to see how sneaky our subconscious and the things that we don't even know that we're doing can live out in our everyday lives. So maybe for some, it's be aware of image management. And for others, maybe this week is to refrain. 
before you tell everybody that all the great things that you've done, just enjoy the fact that they've happened. Two, deliberately keep silent about your accomplishments and talents. Ah, I'm sorry. That's a hard one. Try not to overshare all the good things that you're doing this week. Just be aware of them, right? Deliberately say, I am going to thank God that he has given me the time and the space and the energy to do these things, the resources to live the life that I do, and I am going to enjoy them. This will help you in the area of being humble this week. Three, refuse the impulse. I'm sorry already on this one. Refuse the impulse to name drop, backing away from becoming the center of attention. Now, I do understand that this is how many of you get jobs, and this is how many people operate in this city specifically. Dropping a name is the difference sometimes between a career or opportunities. But this week and even this season, I would love to encourage you to refuse the impulse to just drop a name because you know it, and even so from becoming the center of attention. Because when we do that, when we decide to stop being the center of attention, it draws other people out, and we can actually listen to them and be present to them. And fourthly, uh, honor others as God does, choosing downward nobility so others have more. Another way of saying it is where can you live sacrificially? Where can you say, I have some gifts, and instead of upward mobility and getting more, I am going to choose downward mobility and give so others can have more. So this week, these are just four ways. Don't worry, we have three other categories. We've got much more to go. But the point being, this week, practice this. Just try this. And if this is like too overwhelming of a list, pick one. And if it's too much to do a week, try a day. Like just try. The point is that we practice. We try these disciplines together. The second thing that we see that Jesus did and the second discipline I would love for us to try and practice this week is uh, the spiritual discipline of controlling the tongue. What we say matters. And control of the tongue in this spiritual discipline, it involves this awareness of all of our words and even like our tone of voice and communication. How many of you have you heard? It's not what you said, it's how you said it, right? We've heard that before. How true is that, right? When someone's really rude, but they're like, I friggin' love you. You're like, I, I don't know, was that aggressive? Or I'm kind of offended by what you said. Can you just be kind about it? Like, where, where do you land? This is all communication. Your words, your tone, your posture. It's being aware of it. Now, words are small things, and they hold incredible power. James talks about this. He says, a word out of the mouth may seem of no account, but it can accomplish nearly anything or destroy it. Your words can destroy people. Some of you are in this room, and you have tragic stories of verbal abuse, but like to the max. And to the level that you have a hard time seeing up from down, from people's words towards you. Words matter. And I know that you're not sitting around thinking of grammar and lexicons often, nor am I. But oftentimes, what sticks with us most is not even often the memory of the person. It's actually usually what they say to us or about us or what we think they've said about us. Proverbs 16:24, gracious speech is like clover honey. It's good to the soul, quick energy for the body. When you are gracious in your words, you are blessing everybody around you. It's a huge gift. Words are powerful and they mark us forever. And we've all tasted the power of words. Some of you have experienced deep love by words and also deep hate, especially after these last couple of years. Anybody? Like deep love and deep hate. You can say it. You can acknowledge. It's been a hard couple of years. Anyone? No? You had a great couple of years? Well, that's wonderful. Uh, not mine. Uh, and we know that even long after the person says something, when they're dead and gone, that their blessings and their curses still remain. It outlives them. And maybe you've experienced this, as I said, but, but words stick with us. They matter. It's what people say to us that changes us. Now, here's the good thing. Healing and blessing others with our lips is one of the ways that God heals the world. You and I have this opportunity to heal people through our words. And if you're like, how do I actually do this? Can I give you a prayer for this week? If you're a person that likes praying scripture, can I just give you the scripture? Psalm 141, verse 3. It's just simply this. Pray this over yourself this week. God, set a guard over my mouth. Lord, keep watch over the door of my lips. 
That's a good prayer. Anybody? That's a good prayer. <laughs> Set a guard over my mouth. So this week, how do we operate in the spiritual discipline of controlling the tongue? A couple things. First, with the Spirit's help, try not speaking out of anger or irritability. If you're really angry or irritable, walk away, wait for another time. Fruit usually doesn't come when you're angry and irritated. We blow up people and we hurt lives when we do that. So practice that this week. Be aware. Second, uh, use words to encourage and build others up. Uh, something that my wife and I do, I don't remember where it started, but we decided anytime we were speaking positively about somebody behind their back, we stop and we either call that person or leave them a, an extra long voice memo. Voice memos have gotten out of control recently. Anyone? <laughs> In my world, some people send me seven minute voice memos. <laughs> It's like, this is a conversation. Do you realize you just literally just were talking to yourself for half of that? Anyway, I digress. I'm not using my words to build up. See, I need this too. We all need it. Um, but we have this, and, and we tell them. We call them and we tell them like, hey, we were saying this about you. We just want you to know. And 10 times out of 10, 11 times out of 10, people call back. It's, either, it's a couple responses. Tears. Oh my gosh, I needed to hear that. I didn't know that anyone would think something like that of me. Oh my gosh, I'm so encouraged. Thank you. These things come back. We are a generation that has not been properly blessed. People need to share with other people the good that they see in them. Anybody? Yes? You think it, just begin to say it. And it's a huge gift because it heals those around you. I bet you more people think a lot more highly of you than you realize. They just don't say it because of insecurity, worry, or not knowing the language. So this week, use your words to encourage, build up. Three, refuse to take part in gossip, slander, or backstabbing. This is a hard one, and it's hard because it's just so prevalent. It just seems to be the language of our time. But refuse. Be aware of it. Know where it's coming. Fourth, curb half-truths used to create impressions and manage your image. If, if you say, yeah, I'll be there in 10 minutes, when you full well know it's 40 minutes of traffic, just say 40 minutes, right? Like, just be honest about it. And that whole, like, oh, there was an accident. There's always an accident. There's always something. In L.A., when it comes to being late, you have a billion excuses. I know. I've used them. They're effective. But be honest. Like, be honest about where you're at. That's just one example. And lastly, compassion. We'll close here today. Uh, the spiritual discipline of compassion. Now, I mentioned it just a little bit because Jesus was having tender compassion, but uh, compassion simply means to become the healing presence of Christ to other people. That's what it means. You, in your body, with your time, with your energy, your humanness, you become the healing presence of Jesus to other people. And compassion is feeling with and for others, as well as extending mercy and to helping them in extravagantly practical ways. Right now, my hope is to help you in extravagantly practical ways. Why I'm giving you so much detail is because I do not want to be an uncompassionate person to you to say, love people better. Have a great week. That's not helpful. I don't, maybe for some people, you're like, I know exactly what that means. I've got five points. I know where I'm going this week. For me, I hear that. And I'm like, that sounds like a great ideal that I have no idea how to live in. And so my hope is to be compassionate towards you right now and be extravagantly practical so that this, there's not like a, an idea that we know practically how we can walk from this space this week and actually love people effectively like Jesus wants us to. Even right now, we're doing that. Compassion is a part of the way that God meets the aching and wounded world through compassion. And if you remember all those different stories of Jesus, uh, you remember he was like, he had compassion to outcasts, to prostitutes, to IRS agents, yikes, uh, crowds, beggars, women, foreigners, outcasts, all of these different people that at that moment were not socially acceptable people, he showed compassion to all of them. He saw that people were overlooked and he was quick to feel for them and help them instead of saying, hey, they're just being lazy or promiscuous. And a passage that really does just sum all this up for us is 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. says it all for us right here. It says, finally, all of you, that means all of us here in this room, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another. And then it says, look it, be compassionate. 
like Jesus was, like we're talking about, practice compassion. And be humble, like Jesus was. We're talking about the practice of being humble. And then check this out. Do not repay evil for evil or insult with insult. Your words. We can recognize in this verse that if we practice the way of Jesus through our humility, through what we say, and through compassion, we will bless. And on the contrary, repay evil with blessing because this, check this out, because to this you were called. This is our calling. It's our calling to be these things to people so that you may inherit a blessing. So when we live this out in our everyday relationships, when we open ourselves to inconvenience to show Jesus' love to other people, here's what happens from this verse. Uh, there's a sublime harmony in our life and with others. Uh, we foster brotherly love. All of a sudden, there's just a new level of love and compassion. Three, another byproduct is sympathy. Uh, naturally, then we come to give and receive kindness. I like when people are kind. Anybody else? I love that. Uh, humility. Humility will flow from us when we live this way. We'll be able to give and receive humility. Uh, fervent love, deep love, that, that idea. And then we'll be, it will be, the, another byproduct is not retaliating evil for evil or insult for insult. And we'll be speaking blessing over those who mistreat us. When we live the way of Jesus, this is what happens. This is the fruit, like this list. That, that's what happens in your life. That's what comes out of us. So this week, I'm going to let you guess how many points I have for this one. The answer is four. Four ways that we can practice compassion this week. First, find an opportunity and means to comfort, encourage, and support those who struggle and suffer. There's people all around you that need help. There's people in your apartment building. There's people down your street. There's people in your job. There's people in your home that need help. Start with those people. Start with those who suffer. Secondly, Seek to heal wounds rather than react to the wounded. The idea there meaning that we are going out of our way to be a healing presence, not to make the problem worse. Third, show mercy rather than passing judgment. And that's in your relationships, but that's also extending beyond your personal relationships. And fourthly, and this is very practical, but I think honestly a very useful practice is visit those who are sick. Go to a hospital, connect with people, people that aren't, aren't able to drive and attending to their needs and be patient in your love towards them. These are just some practical ways to live this out. And as we close, you, you see compassion for me hits home. Last year this month, uh, my father at age 57 died. He never woke up on Wednesday, December 29th, 2021. And you might think, well, why would your dad's death need your compassion? And to really answer that question, I would need to take you back to May 5th, 1964. Most none of you were alive yet, okay? My dad was born into his family. He was the baby of 10 kids, not an exaggeration. He had three sisters and six brothers. His dad was an insane alcoholic, uh, which led to physical, emotional, and sexual abuse of him and all of his siblings. My dad was never loved, was never accepted, and never desired by his dad. And as we all know, this naturally created a massive insecurity and chasm in my dad that would never be filled and could never be filled. Fast forward, my parents meet, they marry, they have three kids. And it was Christmas Eve, 1990. And my mom was uh, now a mother of three, and she was getting ready to celebrate, similar to now, getting ready to celebrate Christmas with her new ecosystem of a family. But that Christmas Eve specifically in 1990 was shattered by the news that my dad had been cheating on my mom. And fast forward 17 more years, my dad continued to cheat and continued to live double lives, and my parents stayed married the whole time. To the night, uh, fast forward 17 years to the night when my dad finally decided to tell myself and my brother and my sister about this life he'd been living because he had never stopped cheating on my mom. He had relationship after relationship trying to fill and chase this love and acceptance in relationships. Now, as you can imagine, 
The duplicity was obviously very damaging. One morning I woke up thinking, my dad is this version, and this is our family, to go to bed that night with a whole different understanding and a lot of confusion about what was really going on. And it would alter my future. You see, the reason why I needed compassion on my father is because during the course of his various relationships, he contracted an STD, which quickly turned into cancer, and his cancer was aggressive. And then he was all of a sudden put on hospice in my parents' room. And last December, one year ago, he was no longer able to move or speak. And I was sitting there in his room with him, realizing that if you would have just chosen maybe a different life, a different way, that this wouldn't be our situation. And I was helping my frail, lifeless, weak, speechless father change his clothes so he could have like some sense of dignity. And in that moment, as I'm cutting another shirt off of his body because he couldn't move, I had to make a choice. Was I gonna forgive him and be moved with compassion as Jesus was for the man with leprosy? Was I going to be moved and angry, not at my dad, but at the disease that was taking him from me? Or was I going to choose another way? Compassion hits home for me. And if I'm honest with you in the darkest parts and the hardest parts of that whole process, I did not want to have compassion at all. I wanted to say, good, you are getting what you deserve. And I know that that's ugly to even say, but it was also very true. Jesus holds the ugliest parts of you and of me, chooses to love us and to be mad at our brokenness and not at us. He does that every single day. And that feels incredibly unfair to me. And if you're asking me, I sincerely think that's such a lame end of the stick for Jesus. Like, man, he's giving all of this and we often give nothing. But that's the gospel. That's the beauty of grace. That's what Jesus came to do. That is the love that he came to give. And Jesus asks you and me, with the power of his spirit, to be moved with that same compassion to those people around us. Uh, those final days of my dad's life were sweet. The Holy Spirit gave me capacity for compassion because it was not in myself. I was able to forgive, accept, and love my father by the power of the spirit to be angry at the disease and not the man who contracted it. And what a gift it was, not only for him, but especially for me. And so as I begin, I'd like to end the same way and remind you that the love that Jesus lives out is the single most important way of living that will change the world and bring the happiness that you and I long for. Amen.